Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. With me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Uppins. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's it going? I have been absolutely fantastic. It's been a great week. So you know what I'm excited about, Steve, is as we've asked for people to write in with their community learning topics, people have done that. And so we have now a curated list of a bunch of different community topics that people would like to learn about. And so what you and I are going to do is we're going to go sit back and hammer the books and 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 start to put together some of this stuff. And some of it, I think, will be a little bit shorter and uh, will be a little bit more off the cuff and more of a discussion. And I think others of it will be a little bit more planned and researched and, and, and prepared, so to speak. Um, so we really appreciate everybody who has participated in our community topic. So if you'd like to continue, you're welcome to do that. You can send an email to live at asknoahshow.com or you can ping the Marlin community bot in the Geek Lab at Linux Delta or excuse me, geeklab.ninja. Um, but your feedback continues to be important. It's why we show up here on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. and what we want to do. So if you have a question, if you have a thought on something in specific that you'd like, we don't want to discourage you from sending in your regular emails. So if you have a question, we, of course, our first preference is that you call into the show, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. You can call, you can text, you can email us live at asknoahshow.com. We invite you to join us. The reason for that is if you're able to join us live on a Tuesday night, and you can join us via Mumble, you can join us via Jitsi, you can join us via calling in. But what that allows us to do is when you ask a question, we have the opportunity to ask some questions back and give you some information back, and it can be a real dialogue, and that's more beneficial, I think, to you as well as the other people that are listening to the program. So if you have the opportunity, I know Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. Central doesn't work for everybody, but if you can make it, we invite you to ask those questions live. That will be your best experience, but then if you're not able to do that, don't hesitate to send us an email live at asknoahshow.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Our first email comes in from Andy. Andy writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks so much for your commitment for supporting the Linux community. I really enjoy your shows and I learn a lot. I also love and respect the way Noah Particular wears his heart and his faith on his sleeve. I'm a high-voltage electrical engineer as my day job and I, quote-unquote, know enough to be dangerous type of Linux user the rest of the time. I've been using various flavors of Linux for many years, Canopics being my first dabble about 2006. I'm a keen hobbyist, and I like to have a reason to deploy a project. I've enjoyed your more in-depth discussions about Home Assistant since Steve has been on the show regularly. I love the ideal, but have never quite had the need for any home automation. One comment Steve made sparked my interest, and that was around the power monitoring system that he has deployed. I have CTs from an EF Energy power monitor that puts my data in the energy, EF Energy cloud. I'm okay with that to see my data, but I would prefer to have a little bit more flexibility in the CTs and the control of the sampling rates and be able to analyze it more easily 
in raw form. Are you able to discuss more of how Steve's setup works? I have zero experience with Home Assistant, so I don't know if this is a good place for me to start. But as I said, I have the need. So, prepared to put the effort in to learn and get a self-contained system up and running. My question is, how do I learn what I need, both in terms of hardware to interface to the CTs to a logger and also the Home Assistant requirements? Am I overcomplicating my needs? Should I just stick with the simple power monitor and message the relatively limited data once I've downloaded it? I can quite imagine that once I get Home Assistant server running, there will be plenty of future uses that I will see. Thanks again for your enthusiasm and for helping the community. God bless you both, Andy. So that is quite the email. Steve, what do you think about power management? You, you, this is kind of how you got into home automation, right? You originally said, I need to restart this switch. And so I could go buy a Cisco Catalyst switch or I could just automate the switching of my Netgear switch and just reboot it constantly automatically. So you went that route and thus automated the rest of your life. So how have you done that as far as power monitoring goes? So uh, to back up a little bit, uh, I'm going to use very basic um, understanding for CT clamps and stuff like that just to get the, the point across. I know that's not going to be 100% technically correct, but for people that don't know, CT clamp or a current uh, transformer, what it does is it clamps onto a hot wire, even if the hot wire is shielded. So you don't have to have an exposed wire to do this. And essentially, uh, through electrical theory, what happens is a coil that is wrapped tightly, so copper wire wire that is wrapped around an axis can actually uh, create like a magnetic magnetic field. And through a bunch of math, they're able to figure out uh, how, how much current is currently running through one of these transformers. And then based on the amount of voltage, current and voltage will give you wattage. Um, and so that's how currency, a current transformer works. So with that out of the way, there's a lot of, um, there are different types of current transformers out there that you can get when you're doing it, when you're doing a DIY, where um, the ones that I have are actually, jeez, um, I don't even remember who the, who the manufacturer is off the top of my head. But they were a commercial one that that someone had reverse engineered and open sourced the firmware so that you can basically flash the firmware on there and keep all of your data local. But I say that to say that these ones have not just the currency, the current transformer, uh, but they also have a special chip that helps to to do some things like voltage sensing. Okay. Uh, So for if you just went out and started searching around for current transformer and um Home Assistant, for example, you'll find stuff from ESP, uh, ESP Home and, and Tasmoda and stuff like that, where these little CT clamps are two, three, five dollars, whatever they are, depending on the amount of amperage that they'll sense for you. And then you have to tell it what the voltage is in order to get an accurate reading. With the ones that I have, they actually do the voltage sensing live off of the system so that they are more accurate. Generally speaking, your voltage is going to be in North America, it's going to be somewhere around 120 volts. It, it fluctuates depending on your phase and a bunch of other stuff. Um, so you're pretty safe to get one of those off-the-shelf ones if you just want a, a, a general okay idea, because you it will sense the it'll sense the current going through it, and then you tell it, oh, I'm on 120 amps. Or if you're in 
the EU or whatever, you're on 240 or whatever it is that you're on. Volts. And then the math happens in the background. Okay. Right? So you can start with just a basic ESP32 or ESP8266 chip for 2 to $10, depending on your local currency, and a $10 CT clip. Um, and that will be enough to get you going if you just want a basic idea of, of what's happening. The ESP will connect to your Wi-Fi, and then ideally, if you're keeping it locally, what you'll do is you'll have those messages sent over the MQTT protocol, and that will dump it into a spot where Home Assistant uh, understands MQTT natively and can pick it up and you know, essentially store the metrics and do whatever you need to do with it. So for my particular system, like I said, uh, it's using a modified version of this. It just it's a little more advanced because it's actually doing the voltage sensing on the line as opposed to me having to go in and and manually set that. But it's still broadcasting its stuff and it's dumping into MQTT and uh, Home Assistant picks that up basically as quickly as the sensor the sensors go. So mine pull every. I want to say every five seconds or something. It's pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and just continuously dump that information into MQTT so that Home Assistant can take some sort of action on it. Now, I've heard of Mosquito MQTT, the protocol. Um, I've played with it a couple of times. But what is is it something that you you can use without the Internet, that it can be entirely local? Or is it something that requires a service? Now, MQTT is just a, it's just a protocol. So the way that I describe it for non-tech people is it's basically like a, like a billboard, like one of those things where like a cork board that you go and stick a thumb tack in with a, a note attached to it. That's mm. essentially what MQTT is. So there's, there's a topic and you know, that the topic is one of those kind of billboards and then people just go post whatever they feel like in terms of messages there. And those messages will stick around depending on how you set it, for as long as the system stays up until okay. someone comes and actually replaces that message. So that's why it that's why Home Assistant can read it. It's kind of asynchronous. Like someone will go post a message and it has the message and then it'll have the date that the mess like the timestamp for the message and all the rest of that. And so Home Assistant can pick it up whenever it wants and just look at that and just insert that into its own stuff. So you can do this on the internet. There are public facing ones, or you can just run a, a broker on your own. They're, they're ridiculously lightweight. So you could run this on, you could run this on a Pi one and still have so much headroom. It'd be laughable. Any idea why they call it mosquito? Uh, mosquito is just the MQTT uh, type because there are, there are other MQTT brokers out there. I see. And do you run one locally? I do. And is there a particular one you're like, hey, this is, this is the bee's knees, the one you're going to want? Uh, well, I don't think it – honestly, it doesn't matter because it's just the protocol. But the one that is uh, kind of off the shelf inside of Home Assistant is Mosquito. So there's a plug-in right inside of Home Assistant that you can just go and turn on and away you go. And that's running Mosquito on on Home Assistant itself then? Correct. Okay. So that'll get them started. Now, you talk about buying these ESP home, you know, chips and, and, and buying the CT clamps. Is there just a store bought device that I can Amazon Prime and have showed up at my house and I place the clip, uh, you know, in the breaker box and it just automatically sends all the data out? Is that is that a commercial device that's available somehow? 
Yep, there absolutely are. All of them are cloud-based. So, <sighs> like I said, the one the one that I got happens to be um, uh, someone has developed firmware for it that you can flash to it. If you're comfortable taking it apart and, um, you know, I'm going to say potentially doing some soldering. If you have, there are, there are like jigs that are specifically meant to help you flash things so that it's solderless, but that's another, another story. But basically you have to attach a bunch of wires somehow to, to the actual chip itself and then plug that in via USB to your computer and then upload the firmware to it. Um, so it's not for the, it's not for the faint of heart, but if you are already going down the route of opening up your, your home electrical panel, which I would say, don't do it if you're not comfortable or don't know what you're doing. It is dangerous. Yeah, right? and so for this guy specifically, Andy. I mean, what is this guy? I mean, he would would he, would he know about electrical stuff? He's a oh yeah, he's a high voltage electrical engineer. Okay, yeah, so he exactly. might know something about an electrical panel. So if if he's, I'm I'm going to make the assumption that uh, this would be just fine for him to to you know open up a box. Uh, um, open up this device and just stick some wires on it and plug it in and upload the new firmware to it. So um, I, I really like them. I think that they, they've done a good job. I'll have, to, I'll have to go to my Amazon account and dig up the name because, I don't know, I bought it, I flashed it, and I stuck it inside of a junction box, and it's been there for months ever since. So I don't even see the branding because it's just tucked away in a junction box. And if you if you go for that, Andy, and you open up your panel and you're not sure if it's working, just lick it and uh... <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's great, Steve. So, yeah, we'll have links for you, Andy, in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So we'll have some recommendations for you. And uh, right back in. Let us know how that works out. I'd love to love to know uh, what an electrical engineer can do when when he or she digs into uh, a particular problem with with uh, building stuff and home automation. Yeah, absolutely. Write back in and, and clarify some of your questions. Like if you want specific stuff, I'm more than happy to talk specifics. Um, if you just want to chat, um, drop an email into live at asknoahshow.com and we can court, we can find a way to connect in somewhat more uh, synchronous fashion. Exactly. Again, 855 450 Noah, 855 450 6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. If you'd like to be a part of the program, you can add your voice to the conversation. Our second email comes in from Chaz. Chaz writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I'd call in, but I feel like this is a more of a substantial question and might not be able to be answered in five minutes. I'm thinking maybe this would be a good episode discussion. I've been using a combination of Lineage OS and Micro G and how do you pronounce it? Slashy slash? On my, uh, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> on my primary and backup OnePlus phones. Frankly, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better combination of hardware and software. I very much enjoy having a device with minimal bloat and no connection to Google. Recently, however, the PayPal app stopped working on my phone. This isn't that much of an inconvenience. However, in... Uh, However, my thinking is that the app could be susceptible to this occurring. This could be potentially catastrophic. For example, if an app that unlocks a charging station for electric vehicles stops functioning or a ticket application for an event, I know there's the worst case scenario, but I think it's worth having a contingency for. Even before I started messaging with custom ROMs again, 
I had Proton VPN always on my device with ads and trackers blocked, as well as using NextDNS to block more that I received through DuckDuckGo. Given this, and the fact that I still use YouTube and Google Play movies on my Roku TV, as well as the fact that I used Google services prior to committing to protecting my data privacy, it makes me wonder if I'm really getting a benefit with custom ROMs. Are the privacy steps I'm already taking sufficient, or should I just disable as many Google apps as possible and call it good? I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on where the line between practical stop and overkill begins. Chaz from New York. So thanks a lot, Chaz, for writing in. I really appreciate it. I have to tell you, in some ways, you couldn't have asked the two worst guys uh, for this question because neither one of us are particular fans of Android or iOS. And so neither one of us are particularly excited to go grab an Android phone that we don't have administrative access to and carry it around so that Google has all of our location data. So I'm, we'll start there as an option. And Steve, I'm going to, I'm going to let you take that one because I know you'll, you'll, you'll beat that horse, uh, home. But w- what would you say to somebody that says, well, if I'm going to take my phone with me everywhere, uh, how do I stay private? I guess so. I always go back to what's your attack vector, and in this case, what what does privacy mean to you? Um, because there are uh, all kinds of privacy leakages just having your phone on you, regardless of what it is. So, you know, pinging cell phone towers and and the metadata that you kind of leave behind and um, any kind of association, like if it's an iPhone and you're within. Uh, contact with one of those air tags or i forget what they're actually called but they're basically like bluetooth beacons that that will ping any phone that that happens to like any iphone in the area and so you're you're being identified all all over the place so it if you're worried about that kind of privacy just don't carry your phone that that's all there is to it if you're if you're talking about well i don't want google to mine the data from me uh, you have more options in terms of mm, attempting to limit the amount of information that you have, but you're honestly, I think the answer to a lot of that information is to try and feed them a bunch of garbage information. Mm. So make, make it as confusing as possible. Um, and there's a lot of apps out there that will help you with this. There are browser, um, browser extensions that I, that I use like track me not and so on that, basically just run random queries all over the place to try and uh, confuse them because you bury them in data is, is a better data point than um, turning on your phone once every three months. And, you know, because that becomes like a, a flag, like, mm. Oh, well he's doing something now. Right. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's a, you have to really decide what privacy means to you and what you're actually guarding against before you can decide what flavor of tinfoil hat you want to wear? So I'll I'll tighten the tinfoil hat hard. Okay, um, I went down this road uh, probably about a year or so ago. You can go back and look at whenever I got my Sailfish OS device. That was when I really started to dig into. I started to get really uncomfortable with the direction that that Google and Apple uh, were going, and I got further very uncomfortable when Google and Apple both decided to roll out code to track. Uh, COVID-19 onto my phone, which I didn't ask for, uh, and showed up on the phone to where I couldn't really disable it. I can tell it don't share information, but the code is there whether I want it there or not. And it just reminds me that it's not really my device. It belongs to somebody else and I'm just using it. So you're starting from the, the question you need to ask yourself is, is the device that you're using a trusted device or an untrusted device? 
And before a, at least in my camp, before a device can get the status of trusted device, I have to at least be, it has to at least be possible for me to audit the code that's on the device or pay somebody to audit the code that's on the device. And in both the case of Android and Google and, and Apple, uh, that just isn't going to happen. There's too much stuff that's going to come on the phone. And if the operating system wasn't enough for you, all of the bloat stuff that comes on the phone is going to, is, is a whole nother cesspool and arguably a lot worse, right? And so I started looking into it. And so Steve had mentioned, you know, it'll communicate with the cell phone towers. Well, it will, even if you don't have a SIM card in, even if you haven't signed into Google account, even if you've done nothing other than just taking the phone and had power to it, and driving around, it's going to try to communicate with the cell phone, and it's going to leave the IMEI for the LTE con- or the uh, excuse me the cellular connection on every tower that you've driven by. So you're dropping little breadcrumbs. Um, and with the way that cell phone providers work now, there's a good chance that they're going to be able to look that IMEI up and figure out where that oh, it's registered with Verizon or it's registered on Sprint's network, it's registered on T-Mobile. And if somebody really wanted to push for it, they could go get a warrant and say, I want to know who had this device at this time. So you're dropping breadcrumbs, a very high attack vector, right? And so you'd want to consider that. What is my what is my attack vector? Who are my potential attackers? Uh, and do I care? Uh, and so you, I would I would at least ask those questions. But all of that would lead me back to: Is that a trusted device or is that a non-trusted device? Well, if it's a device that's going to communicate with somebody, a third party, regardless of what you want it to do or how you want to use it. Don't know. I don't know that there's anything that that device could do or anything I could load onto that device that brings it into that trusted camp. So then I started going down the road of okay. So these these uh, these uh, these these alternative ROMs. Do they really do what they say they're going to do? Are they secure? So you have a couple of different options. There is the Lineage OS. That's kind of the mainstay. Uh, I want something other than Google, and I want to be reasonably sure that somebody isn't actively trying to grab at my privacy. And I think Lineage OS will get you there. Understand that as soon as you start loading that Lineage OS phone back up with the PayPal apps and the bank apps and the, all of that things, all of those apps are going to want permission. And all of those permissions are going to collect data and all that data is going to be transmitted back to those various places. So I had somebody, I was talking to them and they had Lineage OS running and they had essentially re-implemented all of the Google stuff back on their phone, to which my question was, well, what did you set out to accomplish in the first place? What what are you doing? It doesn't really, it doesn't seem like it really change anything. And I, I had this discussion at some great length with an engineer for, for a very, very large uh, cell phone company. You'd absolutely recognize the name. And um, he's their RF engineer. So he, he's one of the guys that if you if they have a problem and you call in and say, hey, I'm having a problem on such and such service, he's the guy that they send out to go find the old lady with the out-of-date TV or the out-of-date thing or the pirate radio station or whatever, the lights that are across on the parking lot that are sending out you know, spurious radio emissions. And then he goes back to his employer and says, here's where the problem is. Here's how we know. And then they take legal action to go get those kinds of things resolved. But as a part of that, he, you know, has a fairly in-depth knowledge of what this particular very well-known cell phone company does uh, with their client's data. And, and his his uh, statement to me was that they make more money off of the data that they collect from the users than the actual cell phone service itself. Um and that's just the world that we live in. So that's the that's the first big thing you have to accept right off the bat is, are you fighting a losing battle? Because you specifically ask in your email, Chaz, you say, 
When is it overkill and what is practical here? So if I'm evaluating that, the first thing I'm asking is, if you're going to tie it to a cell phone plan anyway, do you care about any of the rest of it? Because your cell phone provider is going to get a copy of every number you dial. They're going to get a copy of every SMS message, an unencrypted copy of every SMS message you send, as well as the recipient of said SMS message, their cell phone provider is also going to receive a copy of that. Um, so all of that's going to happen no matter what software you're running on your phone. If you still think to yourself, yeah, there's some practicality in doing that, then you start going down the road of which ROM to choose. And so you have a couple of choices there. So lineage is kind of the, again, the, 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 the main choice, but then you also have uh, very hardened security specific distributions that are designed, uh, modeled after Android. Now, some of the problems are they rely on a security chip that is only found in the Google Pixel. And so there are a number of different ROMs that are that are specifically hardened Android versions, but they're only available uh, for the Pixel series. So you basically have one choice of phone. So if I may, um, just so that we're clear, though, hardened Android does not do anything for your privacy. The whole point of a hardened Android device is to prevent as best as possible. Uh, let's let's use the spirit. The whole thing is that all the rest of that um, as a stated goal, right? So we got we want to be careful about how we're couching this because, as you said, all of those other factors still come into play regardless of which ROM that you're putting on there. Sure. So my understanding is with something like Graphene OS or Graphene OS is they, they took Android, they hardened it, and you're right, it's still going to run on a... On, on a device and you're still going to have a subscription service, but they do the best they can to strip out all of the, all of the potential problems, uh, from a security standpoint. Is that fair or accurate? Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's a security standpoint. It is not a privacy standpoint. Mm. They often align, but they are not the same thing. That's fair. So they might know who you are. They just won't be able to get to the data on the phone. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, so Chaz, I would so so I would start there. I would look at I would look at those kinds of things and ask yourself what do you find reasonable? And I'll tell you the route that I eventually wound down. So Steve, he's a stick in the mud. He he literally gets to the point where he just goes, "Okay, fine. You're going to track me. I'll just leave my phone." Haha. Beat. And then that's the end of it. And what do you do? Like the phone sitting off, it's just a paperweight on his desk. And so you want to know where Steve lives. That's about the most you're going to get off us phone location data. So I, I live in a slightly different world in that I would articulate I have to have a phone with me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the last person on a list, on a few different lists of, hey, when everything goes wrong, here are the people we call. And when none of these people will uh, resolve the issue or hasn't resolved the issue, uh, this is the person, this is the bottom bottom of the list and my name uh, you know appears on a couple of those so i have to be able to i have to be able to see that information um and 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 pull into it and so what i've done is i went and bought an s10 uh a samsung s10 and what i like about it is it has a built-in headphone jack and has the ability to run lineage os and so i your number one security slash privacy thing that I would be concerned about is updates. If you don't have updates coming to the phone or you don't have uh, a, a modern software stack, that's going to let attackers in or provide security holes where information that you don't want to leave the phone is going to leave the phone. The second thing it, it gets you is you, at least the people at, 
at Lineage have share in large part your values. So you're going to have a better opportunity to work on some of those things and have some of those features come in. Um, and then thirdly, I, I like a headphone jack and there's just no, no phones have headphone jacks anymore. You can't buy a new iPhone or a new Samsung phone with a headphone jack. And I still like to plug my phone in to a PA system and occasionally, a, you know, it's just useful to have a headphone jack on your phone. And so they don't have courage jacks. And I really like that about the S10. So, uh, all that to say, if you're looking for, if you're looking for a phone, I find buying a specific model phone, flashing it with a very specific, uh, ROM and, and, and getting that up and running, I find that to be very much worth the hassle. I, I don't, what, what you get for that is you don't have any Google services on there. You don't have, uh, any of the other apps that are potentially grabbing your data. And so what you're left with is the base stock operating system that isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's better. Uh, and then the apps that you choose to put on there. And if you're using F-Droid, then you have all the options in the world of putting stuff on there and you can kind of vet what would be uh, problematic and what would not. The last thing I would add to this discussion is uh, one of the things I looked into is I thought, well, so is Lineage OS any better or is Graffini OS any better or is Selfish OS any better from a hardware standpoint? Like if you just power the phone off, if you've, if you've ever watched any of the like really creepy tinfoil hatty, um, security conference stuff, they will talk about how there is firmware that runs on the phone and it has to run even when the phone's powered off. There's a tiny bit of microcode that has to run so it can detect when you push the power button when you want it to power up. And so I've, heard numerous times the claim that, oh, well, that could be exploited. You could put code on here and you could potentially capture a microphone or camera or whatever. And then when the phone comes back up, but I've yet to actually ever see it demonstrated. And I've yet to have anybody explain it to me where they can point and explain how such an attack would be carried off. So it seems to just be vaporware and conspiracy theory. There doesn't that I can find doesn't seem to be any substantial. Hey, here's how this actually happens or a case example of where that's actually happened. Um, but when I was started looking into this and like, hey, is this possible? And where are the potential threat vectors? It came across my radar that, you know, Selfish OS and Graffini OS and all of these uh, other ROMs, they're all using the driver stack that Google puts out for Android. So at the end of the day, there's still the, that, that, that very basic level of code where it's communicating back down to the hardware and the things that you would actually care about, like when is the radio transmitting, when is the radio not transmitting, if I put it into airplane mode, is it actually shutting it off? All of those kinds of things, you're essentially putting your trust between the person who manufactured, the hardware manufacturer who manufactured the phone, people who wrote the microcode, and Google. Um, and so to the extent that you trust that, and again, that's maybe a little bit more of a security thing than a privacy thing, but uh, that's a really long way of answering your question, Chaz. So I guess you called that right. It's a little bit more than a five minute discussion, but I would say yes, it's worth it. I also want to bring atypical in, uh, from our mumble room. Uh, he joins us live. Are you there, sir? Yes, I am. So can you hear me okay? I can. Awesome. Um, so there's a few things that I would add. Um, I have gone pretty far down the privacy stuff when it comes to Android, and even in Lineage, there are certain things that I will rip out. Um, so Lineage, by default, is designed to work on all of the carriers. If you aren't on a carrier, you can remove their bloatware, if you will. Um, there are system programs that can be removed. In addition, I replace the default 
location provider um, because there was a, a point where Google slipped something into the kernel that was collecting data even when you had location stuff turned off. And the open source location providers, they basically hoodwinked and prevent, prevented that. In addition, I also run a kernel-level firewall, and I block things via the host file. So, and to get around needing Micro-G, I use a native open-source maps app called Organic Maps. There's also OSM and. To get apps out of the Play Store, which, even if they rely on Google Services Framework, a lot of times they will still run without it. Um, you can use the Aurora Store, which you don't even need a Google account for. So there's some things there that you can use to try and get around even needing Micro-G. Very good. I appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for chiming in there. Um, lots and lots of stuff here. I'm sure we could spend multiple episodes digging into this even further. But hopefully that gives you something to get started with, Chas. And if you have experience, if you're listening to this and you're going, Noah, Steve, atypical, I can't believe you didn't mention blah, uh, then write in at live at com and, and let us know what are we missing? Uh, how have you dealt with the privacy aspect of your mobile phone? And do you care? About the privacy aspect of your mobile phone. One thing I think that is, uh, is we're going to find where I'm going to, like Steve's already drawn his stick in the sand, his, his line in the sand, and where I am also going to is when people start to require smartphone for things, require smartphones for testing or tickets or banks or whatever. Uh, when that comes, I'm out. Our third email comes in from Gary. Gary writes in and says, Hi, no one, Steve. Thanks so much for taking my question on the air. I'm going to look into self-hosting the site, as you mentioned. I mentioned that it's a Python Flask site. What I didn't mention is that my friend, who is good at web stuff, wrote the visuals and JavaScript that renders the site. I wrote three scripts, one that generates and updates in the info when you run it against a directory. In the info file, you fill in the title, description, and Boolean to publish. The second script reads the info and makes a long JSON file, which is the site. The third script generates thumbnails to update the site, and I add content to the info files, regen, and upload the JSON file to the template. For this reason, the site is simple to regenerate. The server I have running uses Caddy as a proxy for the Flask. What I'm thinking is to make rebuilding a host server fast is to put the Caddy and Flask into a container. Thus, rebuilding my server would be copying the static files to the container and looking at Podman and LXD. Thank you for helping, Gary. So, Steve, I know you've said a couple of times that, hey, I'm not the guy that does everything in a container just because you can do everything in a container. And I'm the guy that writes the container from scratch. So don't tell me it's because I just don't have a good enough understanding about containers. But is this a good opportunity to, to containerize something if you're looking to put up a static site web server and maybe deploying it with something like Podman or LXD? Yeah, it depends on what your what your end goal is. If If your goal is... You know, I want to move this thing around, or I want to make this ultra portable, or uh, I I just want to learn how to do this in in a container. Um, Podman is the way to go. LXD is not um, it's not a container in the sense that the way that we want the way that we commonly use the word containers is for Docker or what we call application containers. Mm-hmm. LXD tends to use system containers, which means it has everything in the kitchen sink in it as opposed to just what your application needs to run. So 
it depends on what your end goal is. All of these things are fine. There's there's no issue with this. Um, I run, you know, I run a wiki software inside of a container because I can. Mm-hmm. But there are other things that if it if it requires slightly more maintenance, I tend not to do that. So it really depends on what what the end goal is. So when you say you run wiki software, is this WikiJS or Confluence? It's what WikiJS is in a container. Okay, got it. Very good. So yeah, um, so uh, you know, uh, we had recommended Hugo, but understanding the Flask and all of this other stuff that's going on, I might suggest at that point you start looking at just running Nginx and copying your static site in there. It sounds like you have a pretty robust infrastructure that's doing the building of the site, and you're just needing to display a site. And so, if I was doing that, I don't know much past Nginx is really necessary to to get the site up and running. You could potentially re- retool it in Hugo, but I think that's the direction I would go. Our gadget of the week this week is the Go Control Husbizbiz. That's H-U-S-B-Z-B. You figure out how to pronounce that. It provides an interface between your PC and Z-Wave Zigbee network. So, Steve, I'd be particularly interested in getting your thoughts on this. The device that you have, does it do both Z-Wave and Zigbee? Yep. Okay. Well, then this have, baby. Yeah, I have this. I have the Go Control. Uh, oh, you do? HS. Yeah. I actually moved away from the actual Zigbee part. Um, and it turns out that that not necessarily a mistake, but remember how I was saying that I, I, I have had in the past quite a few Zigbee problems. Yeah. I thought it was related to the fact that when you've got um, two antennae in the same device or in close proximity, mm-hmm. even if they are on different frequencies, they can interfere with each other. And sure. I thought maybe that was the problem. So I went out and got a different Zigbee stick, a Conbi 2 stick, and I still have the same problems. So it turns <laughs> out it wasn't it wasn't this stick. Uh, and I actually love this stick um, for a number of reasons. So yeah, I get a, give this one a big thumbs up. So this is, it's essentially, it looks like a gigantic flash drive. It plugs in to your USB port, and then it identifies itself as two serial ports. And then what you have the opportunity to do is to connect your Z-Wave and Zigbee devices to the Go Control. And uh, if Steve is using it, I'm assuming this has very good native support with Linux? Yep, it absolutely does. I haven't had a problem plugging it into, well, I haven't plugged it into a Red Hat-based thing because... Um, that's just not the way I roll with some of the, the more base stuff because mm-hmm. I need the more up-to-date packages. But for Arch, uh, Ubuntu, and Home Assistant, no issues. Yeah, you simply plug it into a USB port and, and, and let it roll. And so if you're looking to get into things like home automation, if you're looking to get into things like Home Assistant, you're going to want to con- – I, I always suggest you start with something, you know, automate security, automate lights, automate whatever, but pick a thing that you're going to dig into. Lights are a great place to start. Everybody has to turn a light on or off. And don't do not do it like an animal where you have to walk up all the way across the room. That's how your grandmother did it. Uh, you know, and your, your parents had the little clap on, clap off thing. Now you can do it with your computer or your smartphone, or you can be like Steve and just automate the thing so it happens automatically. But to do all that, you'll have to have a way to talk to it, and that's where the Go Control comes in. So it's available on Amazon via Prime for like 50 bucks. Uh, supports Z-Wave and Zigbee, so you get both of them all in one. You just plug the little USB stick into your computer, and away you go. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. 
The Rocky Linux project has released version 9 of its RHEL compatible distro and debuted its new build service. RISC-V only took 12 years to achieve the milestone of 10 billion cores. That's five years faster than it took ARM. Merchants building businesses on giant marketplaces often have to think inside the marketplace's box. But Medusa, a one-year-old e-commerce startup from Denmark, is going after e-commerce platforms like Shopify and WooCommerce with its open-source alternative, aimed at the JavaScript developer community. Rednix OS, which just released version .1 alpha, aims to be a Kali Linux distribution built around NixOS, tailored for security researchers, pen testers, red teamers, and info security enthusiasts. Justine Tunney is working to port OpenBSD's pledge to Linux. Linux kernel developers have successfully addressed RETBLEED, the latest Spectre-like speculative execution attack against older AMD and Intel processors. However, the difficult repair process means there will be a delay of the release of the Linux version 5.19 by about a week. The U.S. military wants to understand Linux. It's not so much of an exaggeration to say the whole world is built on top of Linux, although most people have never heard of it. DARPA, the U.S. military's research arm, wants to understand the collision of code and community that makes these open source projects work in order to better understand the risks that they face. The goal is to be able to efficiently recognize malicious actors and prevent them from disrupting or corrupting crucially important open source code before it's too late. Orter, a company that makes laser engravers, has stated that they will open source their firmware under the GPL. Microsoft has open sourced its internal tool for generating SBOMs, Software Bill of Materials, as part of a move to help organizations be more transparent about the supply chain relationships between components used when building a software project. The tool, called Salus, works across platforms including Windows, Linux, Mac, to generate SBOMs based on the SPDX specification. And the company that still owns Digital Research's CPM operating system has granted a new, more permissive license for the 8-bit OS, making it free for anyone to modify or redistribute. Thanks, JT. You'll catch his news updates every week, somewhere around the middle of the show. Uh, he puts them together a week in review. Thanks for joining us, JT. We appreciate having you. Um, a couple of other things I'd like to add. So Open EMR 7 was released um, this week or within the last week, OpenEMR 7.0 has a number of features and improvements. It's available in 36 languages and translations. Um, you can download it at open-emr.org. There are a number of huge improvements. This is a big release. So this is really exciting. And there's a lot of things that they've done to improve this. Um, I just I want to call a little bit of attention out to the OpenEMR Foundation, who raised $115,000. Uh, and this is, you know, this is huge because the, anything in medicine takes money. It's not just writing the code. It's getting all of the, all of the stuff certified and so that it can be used in medical practices. In addition to the $115,000 that the Open EMR Foundation raised, they also, uh, received an additional $120,000 worth of code development efforts that were contributed by a group of experts that were working on Open EMR. So this is just a fantastic example of what shouldn't be possible, what shouldn't technically exist. There are way too many players in the EMR space. You look at something like Epic, I think the support contract for a small hospital that I was working with was going to be something in in the way of like two, three million dollars. That's the support contract for the software. That's not even the software or the hardware to host it on or any of the things. Um, and and, and th that's the world that these guys are competing in and they're doing a fantastic job. And so they, they recently did a usability study um, that 
that basically was a requirement for their certification. And the purpose of the study was to test and validate the usability of OpenEMR's user interface. It involved measuring the effectiveness and the efficiency and the task success and the amount of time it took a task to do it and how satisfied the users were. And so this usability study was designed uh, with in conjunction with uh, Columbia University, and the study ended up being a real-world educational assessment uh, for both Columbia University HIT programs uh, as well as allowed them to get the certification that they needed and the requirements fulfilled for that certification. So a massive, massive thank you to the Open EMR community. They're still looking for funding. So if you work in medicine or work around medicine or want to contribute to something like this, this is the software that is used by a number of places that um, wouldn't be able to afford, uh, you know, the 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 the, the million dollar contracts for for the proprietary alternatives. So, an absolutely fantastic job. A number of really really great improvements that have come out, and we'll be rolling this to our our clients that have managed Open EMR instances. And so, a huge thanks to the Open EMR community and the Open EMR developers. You can learn more at open emr.org. Also, there is a new way to install, a different approach to installing Linux on your Chromebook, and it's called Breathe. It's available, uh, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com, and Breathe takes a slightly different approach than the Crouton or the Gallium OS or the Crostini, and that's why it's effective. Essentially, Breathe bootstraps Linux the way that Chromebooks like it. It doesn't rely on Chrome OS or custom firmware. It supports all of the drivers on modern, let's say, past 2018-ish Chromebooks. You don't need to put your Chromebook into developer mode, but you and you don't need to flash any alternative firmware. So this is not a distro, but it's rather a script that you can use to build a Linux distro image based on Ubuntu or Arch. And so you flash it to a USB, you boot from it, and then you run the distro off of a USB, ideally a flash, uh, a fast one, or install it to the internal storage and wipe out Chrome OS. Um, and so essentially the steps are put Chrome OS, Chromebook into developer mode, enable USB booting via Chrome OS shell prompt on a different machine, get breathe via Git, run the build script to create custom image files, flash the custom image files to the USB and boot the Chromebook from the USB drive. So if you're a person that has a Chromebook hanging around and you're looking for an opportunity to get full-blown Linux running on it, you have a better tool now. We asked you to write in and let us know, what are you looking for? What specific topics could we hone in and address? And one of the things that came back was an introduction to home lab security. If you're just starting out with the home lab and trying to figure out how to get your services accessible from the outside of the network, what should you do? So, Steve, I'm going to throw it to you just that big of a question. If you were helping your brother or your sister or your friend or your mother set up a bunch of things, and so you got them set up with Plex, and you got them set up with you know MB and Cody, and you got them set up with the FreeNAS server, and they have all of the things, and they say, but Steve, I can't access it from outside of my house. What would you tell them? How would you go about doing that in a secure, privacy-respecting way? Well, the first question is, is it for themselves? If so, then I might use something like tail scale or some other fashion to connect to their home network, which is fairly easy to set up. Uh, I mean, if, if you're setting up these, these services, you could probably set up um, something that will connect into your home. Uh, and the reason why I say something like tail scale, they're not a sponsor. We have no affiliation or anything like that, but they, they kind of do not busting for you. So they punch out. 
which means that you don't have to explain to somebody how to do port forwarding or anything like that. However, if you are like me and you are trying to make this available to, say, your parents in a different city or wherever, uh, making things accessible to the Internet, there's a couple of things to consider. So the first thing you consider is um, the size of the project and the core competency of the project. So, for example, NextCloud's core competency is all around making uh, a cloud service available on the internet to do all the things. So I, I fairly, I trust them to be able to secure their own installation. And so uh, exposing that to the internet is fine. Whereas some random things, so for example, there's um, there are apps out there for gathering your recipes or something like that. And they use a built-in web server for Django or in Ruby or whatever, these are not acceptable to expose the internet. So you might do something like uh, put a proxy in front of them and then tunnel through. So I know that this is not a basic answer, but if I am thinking about, if I've gone to the process of deciding what things to install to run these services, whatever they are, Plex Mm -hmm. and so on, then I also think that the, these same people are probably capable of, of doing some cursory uh, reading to figure out, should I actually put this on the internet as they are? Because some, some places are like, here's the thing to like, here's how you set it up and test it. Um, but then if you dig deep enough, they're like, oh, and by the way, if you're putting it on the internet, don't do the basic guide. Uh, so, so you need to do your other, other than looking to see if they tell you don't put it on the internet, what kind of things are you looking at to see if you can put it on the internet or not? Well, so some of it comes down to experience. If, if they're using Apache or Nginx in front of it, uh, you might be okay, but you probably should know something about this. It ultimately putting things on the internet is exposing you to risk and, how much effort you wish to put into protecting yourself should dictate how willing you are to put something on the internet. If you don't have anything and you don't really care if if the thing gets broken, then go ahead. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Confluence had a a security breach while I was away, and I generally don't have a policy of running updates while I'm away. And it turns out when I got back, there was a Bitcoin miner on my confluence. Oh, um, really? <laughs> absolutely. Um, it was an easy, like it was an easy way to purge it, and they had already released the the updates and stuff like that. But that's one of those things where, you know, you have to you have to be willing if you're going to put it out on the internet, you got to be willing to take care of it. So that's is your so your is. personal confluence is open to the internet? Like this is accessible? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Okay, interesting. So, all right, I've put it behind a firewall. Nobody can get to it. So we start from, is is that safe? Is that a safe starting point if everything's behind a firewall? I haven't opened any ports up. I've done no port forwarding. I don't have, uh, I don't have anything. I don't have tail scale. I don't have a VPN. I have nothing. Everything is just closed off to the internet. Is, is that safe? Is that a safe starting point to start a discussion from? The answer is probably, unless you have something that's using UPnP, which is a, uh, it's a protocol, for lack of a better way of putting it, that will talk to your router and ask it to open the ports on its behalf. And since it's inside of the trusted network, if the router is configured to allow UPnP requests, then it'll just punch holes willy-nilly. Assuming that that is not turned on, if you've got a firewall protecting you from the internet and you're on uh, IPv4, it is w- w- far safer than 
90% of your peers out there, which means that you're not going to be the lowest hanging fruit. Okay. So I, I've successfully not been the lowest hanging fruit. So now my threat vector is limited to people that are actually interested in me specifically, not just scanning the internet. I set up OpenVPN because it was in PFSense, so I just ran through the wizard, and that seemed to work, and it spit out a config file, and I put that on my laptop and my cell phone, and I gave a copy to my wife and probably a copy to my kids. How am I doing now? I still am I, Is my threat vector still just limited to the people that have access to that VPN, or is there something else that we're not thinking about? No, that's still pretty low. You're, you're still pretty high on the tree, so you're not the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, somebody could perceivably get the certificate or whatever off of your device. But again, they'd have to be targeting you. And if you've got that problem, you, you're good luck trying to solve it. And so as you start to go and wanting to get more access to these things, so now you're saying, hey, I have this Confluence influence or I have this Confluence uh, setup. I don't actually want to deal with it from a standpoint of I want to have I want to let anybody get to it. I don't want to have to give VPN access to my network to let people access this confluence confluence instance. Now is where you start getting into the well, does confluence support being exposed to the internet? If yes, am I am I comfortable with this risk? If this machine gets popped, do I know where that's going to terminate? Or is there a, a privilege escalation thing that could occur on the back end and they could get into more of my stuff? Is that kind of how that process plays out for you? Yeah, generally speaking, um I so Things that are insecure by default go on a separate VLAN and they can't talk back to the main network. Mm. Having said that, um, because of backups and shared storage and stuff like that, there there are holes around the place. So yeah, generally speaking, it's I trust the company or I don't trust the company. If I don't trust the company, stick something like Apache basic authentication <laughs> in front of it. Mm-hmm. And that really, that prevents a ton. That prevents like the script kitties and all the rest of it because... They can't get to exploit. Like, for example, if I had that in front of my confluence, then I wouldn't have got a botnet or I wouldn't have got the Bitcoin miner because they couldn't have gotten to it. They wouldn't have scanned and found and and done the, the exploit on the confluence server itself. Very good. What are your tips? What are things that you would do with your uh, home network? How have you kept attackers out and what do you think is safe right in live at asknoahshow.com we'd love to hear from you as we wrap up the hour I want to go to tony from canada again 855-450 no it's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com tony joins us hey tony welcome into the program oh sorry I, I, it helps if i push the button hey tony welcome into the program okay yeah oh there we go Thanks for taking my call, guys. Um, Noah, I got a question for you. Uh, I guess you take on a lot of businesses and manage their IT infrastructure. And um, like when you run into, do you ever run into situations where, let's say you're, you know, you're taking on a new client and they have, you know, extremely old PCs or old networking equipment um, that then you have to, I guess, manage and. You know, it might be, you know, some really old stuff that will eat up a lot of time. And how do you handle that? Like, do you do you end up kind of charging a premium for that? Uh, just curious, uh, you know, for my own, uh, uh, you know, uh, managing uh, uh, people's infrastructure. I wanted to know because I, I run into that. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So you, the, so it kind of looks like you set up a, a price and you say, hey, I'll manage it per machine. Uh, per month, and they say, okay, and you go, well, your machine is 17 million years old. And they go, yeah, well, we don't care. It's not our problem. We just hired you to deal with it. Is that kind of the, that's kind of what you're getting at? 
Yeah, and like me, you know, you you know, the customer that maybe has or potentially has like a, a newer machine may, you know, may take a lot more time or a lot less time versus somebody where I'm going to have to fight an old XP box or maybe not XP, but you know, something where, you know, a lot more a lot more things can go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So there's we have some hard requirements, right? And so typically what I'll do is I will follow the manufacturer or the software vendor. So when Microsoft says we've deprecated XP, we don't provide any support for it. Well, guess what? AltaSpeed says we've deprecated XP or Microsoft has deprecated XP. They don't provide support for it. Thus, we don't provide support for it. And part of that is just because there you you know, everything has a, a resolution path, right? So before we've ever taken on any client, we look at what what is the resolution path to all of their, their things. And so if something comes up in the way of Windows, the resolution path is, well, we'll try and solve it. If we can't solve it, we've got a couple of contractors that work exclusively in the Windows world, so we'll have them try and solve it. If they can't solve it, then we're going to reach out to Microsoft and see if Microsoft will solve it. Well, if I know before I ever have start that process that at the very end of that escalation process, Microsoft is going to tell me to go pound sand that it's an outdated product and they don't support it anymore. It's kind of a fruitless venture to start down that path. So typically what we'll do is we'll promise less and deliver more. We'll tell the client, no, we will not support your 17-year-old Windows XP machine that you're running as your FTP server on the public internet with no authentication. Uh, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. And if you want to do that, you're responsible for the damage when it happens. And then, and then past that, once we've given them notice and said, hey, this is what we can do, here's what we can't do, then we tried to bend over backwards to make it work anyway, because there are a ton of places. And one of them was an ATM vendor came and said, we want to roll out with Windows XP embedded. And we said, this is a horrific idea. And they went, we went to Microsoft and got security patches and paid umpteen billion dollars to make sure that we were going to get uh, specialized patches. So, so, uh, starting, okay, wow. so starting, so starting, yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah. So starting by setting your expectations or setting the client's expectations, I think that's step one. Step two then is to, to a degree, you use your technical skill to try to bend over backwards and help out where you can. If there's, so for example, we have a client that has a, a very specific, uh, piece of equipment that only interfaces with the Windows XP machine. Well, we can handle that. We can find a machine that'll run XP and we can make sure that it's not on the internet. And if it does need some network connectivity for a printer, something like that, you VLAN it off and put it onto its own little world. So, I mean, there are some technical ways that you can kind of work around that. But I would start with, I tell clients, computers are good for a thousand days. If you buy a computer, you got it for a thousand days, then you better plan on buying a new one. And so when you have computers that are six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 14 years old, um, you should expect them there, there to be problems. And uh, yeah, when we price that out from a managed service provider, we don't have like a, well, you have to have a newer computer. We'll recommend it every time we come out there. We'll say, this should really be replaced or whatever. And the longer that clients sit on that, if they just say, well, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to keep opening tickets and you're, we're going to keep having problems and we don't care. Um, they'll just over time go it lower and lower into the priority queue because there's just not an effective way that we can help that person. Um, and I don't run into that too often because most of the time you can make a pretty good business case like, hey, buddy, here's why you'd be better off spending, you know, 500 bucks on a new com- on, a, on, a, on a slightly newer computer uh, than continuing to run this old thing. And here's how much it's costing your business. Can you live without this? So breaking that down and helping them understand that I think helps a little bit, too. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the advice. Yeah, you bet. If you have anything else, just give us a call back. Thank you.
Yeah, you bet. Again, 855 450 notes 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. The music in my ears, it means we are out of time. But thank you so much for joining us. We record the show live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us at asknoahshow.com. Throughout the week, we invite you to check out podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where you'll find all of the show notes, all of the articles and references that we use to put the show together. You'll find them there, as well as all of the links that we talked about during the show. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central for another episode of Ask Noah. It'll be recorded at 6 p.m. We invite you to join us. We'll see you next week.